Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern, or catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. This month is Black History Month, and there are a lot of details and subtleties around that that are very interesting for people like us, Catholics, people of faith, to talk about. We have invited Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, who is host of a new radio show on EWTN called Beacon of Truth, which airs Monday to Friday every afternoon at 4 to 5 p.m. He also has a book called Building a Civilization of Love, a Catholic Response to Racism, and can't think of anyone better to talk about this tricky subject. Welcome to the show, Deacon Harold. Thank you so much for having me. We wanted to speak to you in particular because um, this is Black History Month, and it, uh, I think it's something that, that as Catholics, especially, that we have to look at with, with, particular, with particular attention, because in our faith, we already have all the, all the wonderful um, teachings and, and ideals and values which guide us in the right direction. And sometimes, sometimes the culture can lead us astray a little bit, but I think that you are probably more expert on this subject than I am. So tell us, Deacon Harold, um, what is the, the proper Catholic or Christian response to, to what's a very real thing, which is racism? Yeah, so, you know, we, we also in the, in the Catholic Church have uh, Black Catholic History Month, which is November. Mm-hmm. So we've got to have this dual thing going on. We have, you know, Black History Month and, and uh, Black Catholic History Month. And, you know, I kind of agree with Mor- Morgan Freeman uh, that I, want, I don't want my history rele- relegated to a month. <laughs> I but, love. I saw uh, Deacon. I, I saw that interview. It was going. It was making the rounds, and it's so wonderful. It's it made it makes yeah, so much sense. Yeah, and, and to me. Oh, no, I, I, it totally makes sense. But I I see where he's coming from. Um, but at the same time, we, you also have. Uh, I think these these kind of months are important as launching points. And, and here's what I mean. I think these months are important because you have a group of people whose voices were not heard, whose voices were suppressed um, for 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 decades and decades. First with slavery, and then with Jim Crow, and uh, and all of that. So now they're saying we, you know, we we want our voices heard, you know, and and here's who we are, you know, and and I think that's wonderful. But I think if it just stops there, and then the month is over, then you go back to business as usual, then nothing really gets accomplished. So what we have to do is use these as springboards to incorporate these into the normal conversation of not only our Catholic experience in the classroom, uh, in our parishes, but also in the American experience as well. So I think these are great ways to raise awareness, um, to make them part of people's consciousness, but then we also have to start living it. <laughs> and that's what my book is about, um, being able to see people the way God sees them, looking them through God's eyes. I think the first brick that needs to be taken out of the wall of racial division. So we understand, um, or we, we hope to understand, that God sees every single man and woman and child as a child of His, a son or daughter of His, right? Equally beloved, equally valuable, equally dignified. Why is that? Why is that not enough? Why do, why can we just can't we just rest on those laurels? Yeah, so that's the foundation because 
That goes all the way back to Genesis 127, the first page of the Bible. When God wants to establish a relationship with us, he establishes a covenant, but he just doesn't leave it there. Um, he gives work for us to do. He leaves us, he says he, um, to our first parents, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He puts the man in the garden, well, Adam, in Hebrew is the fullness of humanity. So she's still, in a sense, contained within him at that point before he takes the rib out. But uh, in that fullness, it says that uh, you, you put in a garden to till and to keep it. So so God has placed us in charge of his creative, his, his creation, his earth. We're supposed to till and keep it and be fruitful and multiply. So it's not enough just to be in relationship. That relationship has to be lived out. And so, um, but because of sin, because of the desire to choose things which are not of God, that's why we have racism. So it's not, we're not innately racist. We're not born racist. Are we born with the original sin? Yes, that's what we inherited from our first parents. But original sin is like an emptiness, and we can fill that emptiness with God's grace and baptism. That gives us sanctifying grace, and, and our souls are filled to overflowing. But that doesn't take away our free will, our ability to say no to what God wants to do. So as we're living this out, we need to be witnesses and examples of what God says in the scriptures of how we, you know, we have to witness that to others who choose to say no, who choose to have attitudes of, of, uh, of division, thinking that their race is superior to another race simply because of the color of their skin, who want to exercise power and control over others simply because they, they, they believe, falsely believe that their race is superior. So, so that's why we have to. It's not enough just to to, to say the words and just to to witness it. We have to live it out. Mm-hmm. We have to show people the Jesus. We have to show people the gospel. Deacon Harold, I'm I'm not a white American. I'm Hispanic, and I I learned English late at 11 or 12 years old. I grew up in Mexico of Cuban parents, but I grew up in Mexico. And what I what I know about racism is that it's a sin that cuts across every culture and every race. So I'll give you an example. I'm married to to a white American. He was Jewish when I met him. And now he's a, a daily mass going Catholic. Hallelujah. And he um, and we have children of all colors of the rainbow. We even have an Asian child. We have dark children, light children, and Asian. And my idea, my understanding of racism is that it's part of original sin. It's a rejection of the other. At, but it's not particular to a to one race. So here in America, we often these days find the race uh, the sin of racism imputed to just one race, like one group of people. But in my experience, racism is just part and parcel of original sin. I was a couple of days ago. I was with some Hispanic friends, and they were they have young adult children, daughters and sons, and they were expressing how they didn't want them to marry Americans. They, they they have a prejudice against the American culture. They live here in the United States and their children are American, but they want their children to marry Hispanics, for instance. So I find attitudes of, of sort of otherizing, which is a strange word, but making people very other and, and apart from yourself to be a part and parcel of every single sinful human nature. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. So I would say that though racism is an effect of original sin. Yeah, so so because of this, uh, of the fall... Uh, there were consequences of sin. We see the temporal punishment. Well, the eternal punishment of sin was the loss of heaven, and that was shown by being by them being thrown out of the garden. But there were temporal effects of sin as well. Painful childbirth for the woman, and the man now had to till the soil and sweat and to to, to bring forth fruit from the earth. And so, yeah. So, so what we say is racism or, or effects of original sin. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that we have to make a distinction between racism and prejudice. So. Prejudice 
is making a preconceived notion about someone, not based on any factual or objective knowledge or experience. And racism is that, is prejudice with the added piece. The reason why I just said that to you, or the reason why I believe this is my race is superior to your race. And so, for example, uh, someone came up to me and said, you know, uh, oh, you went to Notre Dame. What position did you play? Oh. They just <laughs> look. <at me. laughs> so some people would say that was racist. That was racist. No, it wasn't racist. It was prejudice. It was stupid. But it, but it wasn't racist. Why? In order for that statement to be racist, he would have to have met when he said it. The reason why I just said that to you, because someone that looks like you would not be able to get to a school of that academic caliber uh, unless it was athletics. And so that's the only way someone like you can get to a school like that. That would have been racist. But when he found out that I had an academic scholarship, that I'm the first person in my family ever to go to college and I never played football, then he was, oh, 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 sorry, Deacon. You know, he's like kind of apologetic. <laughs> so, and you're right. The, I think the, the, the a lot of attention is drawn to the black-white issue when it comes to this because of it, what happened in this country, because of slavery, because of the recent, um, in, back in during the pandemic with George Floyd and all of that, really brought attention to that. But you're absolutely right. The same thing happened with Hitler in Nazi Germany. That clear, clearly, that was racist. It happens uh, with, with any person of any culture. My, my culture is better than yours. I think the French... Are, you know, I'm French, and I think the French are better than the than the, than the Russians. Or I mean, it, it can happen in any kind of um, situation where you believe your race, your ethnicity, your color is superior to someone else's simply by the fact that you believe it. Not again, not based on any factual knowledge or experience. You don't even get to know the person. You don't get to know them. You don't get to to, to see and understand uh, why this person believes this, where this person is coming from, and and where does where do those prejudices come from? We're not born with them. I mean, you have kids. I have kids. When you see kids playing on the playground, you don't see four year old, five year old saying, "I'm not going to play with you because you're Asian." I mean, they they, they don't do that. No, but, so where do they learn that from? Uh, racism is learned behavior. So they, they watch television and now well, with the advent now of the internet, social media and their phones and jokes from comedians and jokes from their parents. And they, they see movies where blacks and Hispanics are portrayed as domestics or, uh, you know, or gang members. And, and, and so over time they begin to form these ideas in their mind. Well, this is just must, this must be how these people are because this is what I see every day without really getting to know the individual or the person or the person themselves. And that's, that's what we have to start doing. Let me, let, let's talk a little more about the difference between racism and prejudice. I've, I, I find that a very interesting subject. I tell my husband, my husband and I sometimes sit around and talk and I say, well, not all prejudices are bad because sometimes a prejudice is like a, like a preference for your, for your own thing. So for instance, I have a prejudice in favor of the United States over other countries. And my husband says, well, that's patriotism, right? Like you say, like a love for your country. And you say, well, our country is, and I do, I feel this way about the United States. Our country is superior. It's wonderful. It's, it's a, a glory to, to the history of the world. That's kind. That's a prejudice, right? So, when can a prejudice be a good thing, or is a prejudice, or do you think a prejudice is always bad? No, prejudice is not always. Bad. For example, when I first started traveling to the South, I thought everybody ate shrimp and grits. <laughs> and I come to find out, wait a minute, not everybody down here, but where, where did I get that from? I got it from TV. I got it from movies. I heard it from people like, oh, you have to try shrimp and grits when you come to the South. So I just thought everybody ate it. And of course, 
everybody does it. You know, so not all prejudices are bad. For example, you may, like, how about this? I travel 250,000 miles a year. I have a preference for the type of luggage that I use. Uh-huh. I use Briggs and Riley over whatever other luggage manufacturer. So I, in a sense, I have a prejudice or a preference for that. Mm-hmm. But when it becomes sinful, when it goes against the dignity of the human person, mm-hmm. when it degrades another person, exactly. that's that's when it becomes an issue. Yeah, exactly. That's a that's and a I wonderful. Feel the same way. I'm that's an a great too. I was not. Yeah, I was not born in the United States. My, I mean, my, my mother. Could have t- chosen to take us to uh, England, to France, to Canada, but she chose the United States. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I became a citizen when I was 17. I feel the same way as you do about the opportunities that this country provides and the freedoms and all the things that I'm doing now. You know, this, this country has afforded me that opportunity. And let me say this. Let me say this. People say, well, the church is racist. The church don't like black people or, the, or Hispanic. Well, hold on. Ooh, time out. I travel 250,000 miles a year. I've been to 31 countries around the world. Let's be real. Most of the people I speak to are not people of color. And I literally get invitations to speak every single day of the year. Mm-hmm. Literally. I, I have to say no to a lot more things than I say yes to. So where's the prejudice? If they don't want, and I'm a black Catholic, and I'm proud to be black Catholic. So, and and people know that. People see that. I have nine series on EWTN. Where's the racism then? Why am I getting all these invitations if the church is so racist? See that. So we have to make a distinction between institutions that are racist and people in institutions who are racist. So, for example, the church can't be racist. The church is a spotless bride of Jesus Christ. The church was founded by Jesus Christ. It can't possibly be racist. But there are people in the church. <laughs> Individual. Deacon, something that, that is so spectacularly gorgeous about our faith is its universality. It's the it is the way that it embraces every single culture and society and every condition of man up and down the social ladder, up and down the races, across time. To think that the church is racist is to not know anything about the church. In fact, Amen. In fact, the the church is growing like crazy in Africa, for instance, and in Asia. I mean, people are turning to Christ. People here, sometimes in the West, not sometimes, people in the West have decided that they know everything about Jesus. They heard, they heard enough. They heard enough about the church. They're moving on to better things. People in other, other continents that aren't uh, um, Western or white, they are the ones who are embracing Jesus's message as as a as a new and gorgeous thing as 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 we should be doing as we should be embracing it day after day. Uh, well said. Uh, that that that's that's very well said. And that and that's been my experience traveling around the world. And I also find, especially in the Asian countries that I've been to, when the uh, and countries that are actually Muslim that are under Sharia law, uh, where the church is under oppression, that's where the church is most alive, because the mm-hmm. only yeah. thing you can rely on is Jesus. In our country, we're spoiled. You know, oh, I, I can go to Mass at like five different times a day or, you know, uh, or, you know, we, we can get lazy spiritually. Or we say, or we they, say, all they have to hold on to is their faith. Or we think it's like another kind of therapy, right? Or like a yoga class. Like we think our, we think our religion is, it's very easy to fall into the idea in our comfortable Western culture that religion is just another way to help us feel better about ourselves. Yeah, it's like self-help. Exactly what you said, self-help or therapy. And it's 
not. It's a relationship Mm -hmm. of intimate, personal, loving, and life-giving communion. And when you're in love, you cannot imagine what your life would be like without that other person in your life. And that's where we need to get to in this country. That's why young people are leaving for nothing. They're not leaving for to become Protestant. They're leaving for nothing. That's the, the largest group of young adults. The largest rising group are the nuns. And I wish I meant the sisters. But the N-O-N-E-S, when they check, what are you? Catholic, Protestant, Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, they check none. And uh, to, to stem that tide, we need to get back to presenting the faith in a way that gives them the why of the faith and it connects that why to their everyday lived experience. And also, do you think, do you agree with this, that presents the, the faith as a challenge and a responsibility that, that calls to them to become more? Because I, I find that if we present our faith as, as just another way of, again, making, you, making yourself feel better, a way to be nice, a way to get along with people, then it doesn't, it doesn't call out our greatest, our greatest uh, noblest impulses. And that's what people are looking for. I think people are looking for a reason to wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to conquer this day and I'm going to do it like a knight conquers, <laughs> conquers in the war because I am built for great things. I think that's what our faith should be offering. Oh, you're exactly right. And that's why uh, you look at religious orders, the ones that are rising, the, the, they're getting most vocations, the ones that are flourishing and, and exploding are the ones like the Carmelites. These are, uh, they're going back to wearing the traditional habit. They're going back to living more of a, a, a monastic lifestyle. Or they're just so, like the Nashville Dominicans and Ann Arbor Dominicans, they're so, or the Sisters of Life, they're just so in love. They, 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 and they, they show that love with such passion and conviction. And they're so strong in their faith. And, and people, you know, sometimes people are pushed away from that. But I, I agree with you. People are attracted to that. They want beauty. They want truth. They want to see strength in the faith. They want to see confidence in the faith. You know, and when you see, when you see people truly living an authentically Catholic faith, it is challenging and it is inspirational. Mm-hmm. These days, Deacon Harold, unfortunately, whenever we hear about racism, or way too often, what it gets uh, it gets all wrapped up into these ideologies, which I find very damaging, and I think have led to a lot of divisiveness in our country. Has even led to evil things like anti-Semitism that we've seen um, just burgeoning right in our all across the the country um, since October seven. But these are the ideologies of critical race theory. Uh, parts of the uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, for instance. Can you explain what, your thoughts on this? What is that distinction? When does our hatred of racism and of, of otherizing people, when does that turn into a, a dangerous ideology like critical race theory? Yeah, so, you know, when I was looking at, at critical race theory and the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, uh, I, what I when I first was writing the book, I, I there was a lot of hatred, a lot of vitriol. People, uh, you know, good Catholic commentators are saying this about critical race theory, that about Black Lives Matter. And I said, you know what? Let me look at this for myself. Let me let me look objectively because everybody's saying all these things, but let me see for myself what they say, what you know, what, what they're about. So I bought, for example, critical race theory. I bought the books of Richard Bell. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, David Bell, Richard Delgado, Janice Stefanik, Kimberly Crenshaw. And I read what they had to say for themselves about what critical race theory is. And I, I, with the, and, and Black Lives Matter. So I, in, in my mind, I was thinking, okay, maybe there's something here that we can use 
um, in, in, our, in, a, in an authentically Catholic response to racism. Like this was the, the the glasses that I put, the lens that I'm looking at this through. Maybe there's something here from a Catholic perspective that we can use to help ameliorate this issue of race. And I dove into it, and the answer is definitely no. Sadly, there's, there's no. Um, the first thing to know about critical race theory, it's a theory, but people treat it like critical race fact. <laughs> but it's just it's just a theory. In fact, it's an intellectual, it's a hypothesis, intellectual hypothesis that's based. It doesn't say race is about categorical distinction or biological distinction. So, for example, it's not about black, Asian, Hispanic, Native American. It's not I'm French, I'm German, I'm Mexican, I'm 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 Bajan. It's it's about a socially constructed instrument. So race for them is a socially constructed instrument used by people of a predominant race to exercise power and authority and control over another race. Mm. See? So, it, so, it's, so, not so even, right? it's not even it's not even based on ethnicity or actual DNA. No. Okay. No. See, it's that's a construct. The whole, so wait a, construct. a minute. So now you're taking race, this 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 objective thing, and you're twisting it to mean something else. Mm-hmm. Right there was a red flag for me when I first started looking at this. Um, and, and when you look at you know the, the history of critical race theory, going back to critical legal theory from 1970s, critical theory from the 1920s, that goes back to uh, Karl Marx um, and, uh, and Freud, actually, with um, dialectical materialism, which goes back to the Hegelian dialect. I'm not, that's, a, that's a lot mouthful. I explain it in great detail in the book. But, but there's these, these um, roots of, uh, in order to affect change, basically, you have to have conflict, division, violence. I mean, these are things to facilitate change. That's not the gospel. That's not, so actually, incorporating critical race theory makes things worse because the foundation for change is so antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we can't accept it. I saw um, very sadly that and across many schools in the United States, um, the, the, the curriculum that they're using in some elementary schools for Black History Month comes directly from the BLM movement. And this is what made me super sad is that a lot of the 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 stuff that uh, that's about race is also being tied into transgender ideology which and the and and you know trying to knock down heteronormativity which is basically erasing the family right the idea that men and women join together and form a family naturally and how how that is not natural and that and how that can't be uh put as a primary way or can't be given the primacy that we have in our society. So these ideas of race and the and these terrible ideas of race when it's critical race theory and the terrible ideas of the transgender movement and 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 all that sexual liberation are, have been joined together and are being given to oh, children. Oh, no question about it. Why? Why? Yeah, what's no question the conne- about it. That's, that's the whole heart of the Black Lives Matter movement. What's the connection? See, see, Explain look. to us who are puzzled of why these things exist together. Exactly. So, so here's the thing. The Black Lives, first of all, there's nothing wrong with the words Black Lives Matter. Nothing wrong with the words at all. Um, like I said before, it, it's, a, it's a, a, where you have a, a, an entire race of people whose voices uh, have been suppressed for so long. And it's like, you know, hey, we want to show now that we're here, that we matter, that we have a message. There's nothing wrong with that. The, but the, it's the, the Black Lives Matter 
is a whole nother story. So if you looked on their website, because I, 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 I knew once people saw what they were really about, that they would take this down from their website. But I screenshotted this thing like crazy back when I was putting the book together. And so it says, one of the things says that, you know, again, this is all about Black Lives Mattering, right? So they say, we make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate. We uh, uh, are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege. That means the, the authentic nuclear family, man, woman, and children, and uplift black trans folks. Especially black trans women. It says uh, specifically, we want to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family, uh, especially and especially upheld uphold women. We foster a queer affirming network. So you look at that, you say, what does any of that have to do with Black Lives Mattering? And then you find out. The more you you dig into it, it's a Trojan horse. So on the outside, it says race, race, race. But on the inside is this whole other agenda, which has nothing at all to do with race, but the destruction of the nuclear family and pushing forward an agenda of transgender, which has nothing at all to do with race. That's their real objective. And so when people try to incorporate these things into school systems, into, into the Catholic pastors, they literally don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And that's the connect. And what's the connection with critical race theory? They're using the same kind of Marxist approach uh, to this whole thing. The, the way we make change is, is changing systems. We have to change the system in order to make change. Well, no, Jesus didn't come down across to save systems. He came to save people. Mm-hmm. So my point is, we have to work with changing people in order to change the system. And there, so it's, it's completely backwards. They want to change systems in order to change behavior and it just doesn't work that way because if it worked that way it would have worked already and and that and that's the problem tension conflict struggle in order to affect change that's why we that's why even these critical race theory and and black lives matter movement has been uh, active for uh, several years now and we've not seen anything get better and it won't because their way of going about this is completely wrong and completely uh, antithetical to a, a catholic way of looking at these issues in fact they say that the catholic way of uh, approaching this is is worthless so that if they, if they think that our approach is worthless, and why are we even considering this? Deacon Harold, I'm sorry to say we're out of time, but I can understand very well why your new show on EWTN is called Beacon of Truth. I hope that our listeners tune in. It's uh, every afternoon, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. Your book is called Building a Civilization of Love, a Catholic Response to Racism. I'm sure it's wonderful. I'm going to hang up right now and order it because I can't wait to read it. And thank you for joining us today during Black History Month and giving us a wonderful perspective on, on a very complicated topic. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be with you today. This year, Valentine's Day falls on Ash Wednesday, which presents for us Catholics an interesting combination of dates. We will be talking about that later. I and the rest of the Catholic Association and Conversations with Consequences team. But first of all, I wanted to share something that 
always comes up for me when St. Valentine's Day comes up, which is a beautiful poem by John Donne, who was an English poet who was born in 1571. He happened to be the great, great nephew of St. Thomas More. I just recently learned this when I was reading his, his biography. He wrote、uh, a marriage song on the occasion of the marriage of a noble man and woman in England who happened to be getting married on St. Valentine's Day. It's one of my favorite poems, and I thought you might enjoy hearing only a small portion of it because it's a very long poem. Hail Bishop Valentine, whose day this is. All the air is thy diocese, and all the chirping choristers and other birds are thy parishioners. Thou marriest every year the lyric lark and the grave whispering dove, the sparrow that neglects his life for love, the household bird with a red stomacher. Thou makest the blackbird speed as soon as doth the goldfinch or the halcyon. The husband cock looks out and straight is sped and meets his wife, which brings her feather bed. This day more cheerfully than ever shine, this day which might inflame thyself, old Valentine. Up then, fair Phoenix bride, frustrate the sun, thyself from thine affection takest warmth enough, and from thine eye all lesser birds will take their jollity. Up, up, fair bride, and call thy stars from out their several boxes, take thy rubies, pearls, and diamonds forth, and make thyself a constellation of them all, and by their blazing signify that a great princess falls, but does not die. Be thou a new star that to us portends ends of much wonder, and be thou those ends. Since thou dost this day in new glory shine, may all men date records from this day, Valentine. Night is come, and yet we see formalities retarding thee. What mean these ladies which, as though they were to take a clock in pieces, go so nicely about the bride? A bride, before a good night could be said, should vanish from her clothes into her bed, as souls from bodies steal and are not spied. But now she's laid, what thou she be, yet there are more delays, for where is he? He comes and passeth through sphere after sphere, first her sheets, then her arms, then everywhere. Let not this day, then, but this night be thine. Thy day was but the eve to this, O Valentine. Here lies a she sun and a he moon there. She gives the best light to his sphere, or reaches both and all, and so they unto one another nothing owe. And yet they do, but are so just and rich in that coin which they pay. That neither would nor needs forbear nor stay, neither desires to be spared nor to spare. They quickly pay their debt and then take no acquittances, but pay again. They pay, they give, they lend, and so let fall no such occasion to be liberal. More truth, more courage in these two do shine than all thy turtle doves and sparrows, Valentine. I hope you enjoyed my favorite poem. Next up, I welcome my. Co hostesses, Lee and Ashley. Welcome to the show, ladies. It's so great to be with both of you. And what a fun, kind of complicated topic、um, that I know a lot of Catholics are thinking about, which is how to thread the needle or, or balance, if you will, the fact that、uh, this year, Valentine's Day falls on Ash Wednesday. So we have Uh, one holiday that's you know, very much about indulging, and then another holiday that's very much about going without. And so I know we're going to talk about you know, some of our ideas for what to do.、Uh, but I thought you know, this, the fact that this is happening was actually a good opportunity to reflect a little bit on the history of Valentine's Day. And I think you know, this is not actually an, a new dilemma.、Um, the church has often, over its history, 
found itself a bit out of place with the, you know, the culture that it's in and has in many occasions really appropriated um, holidays that were pagan or secular and found a way for Catholics to participate in those holidays by sort of reclaiming, if you will, the, the good attributes of those holidays. And it's funny because Valentine's Day is actually Christian in its origins, but I think of it very much as a secular holiday because of the way it's been commercialized. It was actually my daughter the other day who was, uh, you know, she had watched some sort of educational video. And many of us know that it was um, St. Valentine or, or the Bishop Valentine, whose martyrdom was the origins of, of, the, of the holiday. But actually there was also an appropriating of a pagan holiday that had to do with oh, something about young girls or men drawing the cards of women that they would court. And that's where we get some of the card exchanges. But, you know, I'm just one other example of a time when we've had holidays that we've sort of fused the secular with with the Christian is Halloween. Halloween is basically born of the fact that there was the pagan holiday. Uh, it was a pagan Celtic holiday that happened to fall at the same time as All Saints Day. And so we kind of merged the two and got um, Halloween. And so I can just say that uh, in our household, it happens to be that Mardi Gras is the day before, or Fat Tuesday is the day before Ash Wednesday, and that's a day for for feasting and indulging. So we're just going to have a very Valentine's Day themed Mardi Gras <laughs> and celebrate it the night before with a little family party, lots of treats and, and indulging, almost like a St. Valentine's Day Eve. So I don't know, what are what are you two going to be doing to, to thread the needle, if you will? Well, before we get to that, Ashley, I just want to make a little claim for poor Bishop Valentine, which you sort of jumped over rather quickly from yes, pagan. Sorry, pagan. sorry, Bishop Valentine. <laughs> <laughs> you went from pagan to quickly Bishop Valentine, and then right you slid right into the secular holiday of Valentine's Day. But Bishop Valentine, he was a saint. He was a bishop during the time of Emperor Claudius, I think, in the third century, he was martyred for marrying young couples in secret. So the story is, and of course, we don't know how much of this is actual true history, but I'm sure the general margins are right. Are right. So in those days, uh, one of the things that might keep a young man from going to war for the Emperor Claudius, who I'm sure was very busy pushing the borders of his empire ever outward, was that he was married or in love mostly married to a, a woman and didn't want to leave her. So uh, the emperor actually banned all marriages for young men. A man, a young man could wow. not get married till he was older. So that's the story. And Bishop Valentine felt so strongly about the sanctity of marriage, the importance of marriage for society, for the children that would inevitably come, and just for the general tenor of the culture that he was marrying young couples in secret. And he was martyred for that. He was caught and I'm sure died a horrible, tortured death. And I think for today, Bishop Valentine is a wonderful model for all of us because we also live in a society where marriage is being pushed further and further out. Before, in the time of Emperor Claudius, it was so that young men could go fight wars in distant colonies. But now it's for other reasons which seem as compelling to us, right, or to young people like the need to get your resume perfectly and uh, filled and and a, a great job and all the money in the bank so you can buy a house or or just young couples sometimes saving for years for the ceremony, for the reception that I hear people spend fortunes on and then they put off their marriages. Anyway, so uh, a call out to Bishop Valentine. Let's remember it's St. Valentine's Day. Before we slide into the secular part of 
Valentine's Day today. Um, I forgot to mention, too, that the name of the pagan festival was Lupercalia, which was a, a pagan Roman celebration of fertility. And it was celebrated on February 14th. That's ah, where it was okay. kind of... Um, well, then, and then the bishop was marrying these young couples. I'm sure they were very fertile. And in February, yeah. the world comes to life again, right? After winter. Here in Florida, where I live, the world's always full of life. But I know mm-hmm. in other parts of the world, things get quiet and then get lively again. And fertility comes rushing back. Uh, well, at my house, my eldest bir- son's birthday is on the 13th of February. So Valentine's Day has been an afterthought for now 19 years. Um, he lucked out this year by getting to have his birthday on Fet Tuesday. So he doesn't have to transfer any celebrations to the following Sunday, which we'll probably with our other three sons who are all born in March. And I think because of our son's birthday, especially, you know, when they're little, that's really a big deal for them. Valentine's Day has been, you know, here or there for us. So we like it, you know, a little celebration at home. This year, my husband's going to be in Rome. So not an issue in our house. But I do I do remember one of our first Valentines together before we were married. And he said he'd made a reservation at a restaurant. And I was so excited. And when he told me where, I was like, next to the grocery store. And he said, it's not in the grocery store. It's near the grocery. And it was a lovely dinner. But I remember one of those first sort of like, I was already being picky when he had gone, you know, as a 20 year old young man, <laughs> gone to the effort to make a reservation for us. And yet I was already complaining. Ashley, I love your idea that we talked about earlier and not out loud yet about doing the king cake with pink and white icing. That's really fun. Now, this is my first year I'm going to be actually making one. And I like the idea that you have of combined having a Valentine's Day themed Fat Tuesday family celebration. I think that we'll do the same at our house. Yeah, no. And I think it's a, again, kind of, you can turn it into a teaching moment and, and explain the way that our faith comes first, um, but we can still have fun doing it. And I think that's sort of the spirit or the ethos, if you will, of the way the church has gone about co-opting pagan holidays. I mean, again, Christmas, you know, is another example uh, that there's a lot of pagan roots and origins to to Christmas, uh, the connection to solstice. Right. And so, you know, but there's there's ways to draw meaning or good out of, uh, you know, the original, like fertility is something to be celebrated. And, you know, and then weaving that in with what Gracie talked about, and, you know, the way that the church ordered that fertility towards a higher thing, which is love, romance, and marriage, and and doing, you know, and, and celebrating that. So I think one way to look at it is like, oh, what a drudgery. Oh, the poor kids, they don't get to do their Valentine's Day exchange on Valentine's Day. I mean, at my kids' schools, they're just doing it the day before. But another way to look at it is this is a great teaching moment uh, to talk about the fact that the church doesn't just say, nope, you can't participate in these holidays. We don't want to have anything to do with it, but instead tries to find ways to infuse the culture with faith. There is something very pretty in the secular culture about Valentine's Day, in my opinion, because of the way it it holds up that light of romance in a culture which is becoming more and more devoid, devoid of romance. If you watch if you spend any time on Netflix or whatever streaming platform you might use, there's very little romance out there. It's very much uh, a very sort of nakedly sexual culture that's being reflected back at people. And then you get Valentine's Day and you see in everybody that desire, that 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 love, that sexual love can be eleva- is elevated into something permanent, faithful, 
filled with the best emotions and the most wonderful promises. And that's romance. That's Valentine's Day. It's such a such a much more beautiful presentation for that 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 sexual urge, which is which does lead to fertility in, in the right setting, but that has been hijacked into other less savory realms lately. Yeah, and I think, you know, again, the fact that we have Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day uh, is is a reminder that we can still actually celebrate Valentine's Day on Ash Wednesday. And you can do it. There's plenty of things you can still do that don't violate the call for abstinence. As our colleague Maureen, who couldn't be here today, mm-hmm. has pointed out, you know, abstinence only refers to food. And no, so, actually, you know, men can I think, still bring home. I think I can read Maureen's reflection that she wrote for the National Catholic Register. What do you think? Yeah, it's really, it's it's really charming. She was supposed to be on with us today, Maureen Ferguson, our colleague at the Catholic Association. But it's such a charming reflection. I have to read it to you. This year, Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday happen to fall on the same day. Penance and abstinence coupled with romance. At first blush, it may seem like an awkward pairing. But for those of us with a vocation to marriage... We can devoutly, enthusiastically, and simultaneously embrace the call to both penitential and spousal love on February 14th. Abstinence only refers to the food, after all. So forego the wine and chocolate on your Valentine's date night, but feel free to fully embrace your marital love. Gents, bring home roses and a sweet card. Ladies, dim the lights and pull out the candles. Spray on your favorite perfume and get your Spotify playlist ready for some Ash Wednesday romance. Uh, ladies and gentlemen is from Maureen Ferguson. I can't think of better advice. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, just, men can still bring home flowers. You can still exchange cards. And in fact, you can think of a way to show love and affection for the people in your family that doesn't involve food. And, you know, in our sort of food obsessed culture, it's also a great, it's a great call to find other ways to celebrate things that aren't all about food, even though I love food. <laughs> yeah, same here. Absolutely. You also but, like um, you also love spousal love. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but you know, I was glad you um you you mentioned what your kids were doing in school, Ashley, because I was going to ask you um because you have so many kids in pr- like primary school right now, and I know that, that was a big part for me growing up was exciting and like being excited to exchange the cards and. Of course, they probably aren't allowed to have sugar at these parties anymore. But um, one thing I saw that, you know, I think at first I thought, oh, this is just another sort of, you know, dumbing down of holidays because some of my um, kids attend public school. And, you know, so the Halloween party is now like a harvest party and things. And Valentine's was always a the, lately it's been a friendship celebration. But I've learned to really actually appreciate that sort of renaming it for the kids, especially in light of Gracie, what you were just talking about. I mean, romance and fertility, those are all grown up things. And to kind of push that onto like third graders, the need to have a Valentine or, you know, to sort of overly, you know, put adult feelings onto little kids is, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's not okay, but to show friendship and love and to honor that and to, for everyone to feel comfortable giving a Valentine to anyone just to show some affection, I think is a great idea. And so I actually kind of like the idea of a friendship celebration. Um, right now, I don't have any kids who will be having that in school anymore. So <laughs> I lucked out again this year, but. Um, Personally, I rather imagined our Ash Wednesday slash Valentine's Day, my husband and I maybe stealing away um, in the evening to a, a local a local our local hotel that we go to a lot that's very has a very pretty bar and maybe just like sharing together like half a glass of wine would that be so bad no i don't think so at all <laughs> i feel yeah, like it's no, worth I... it it's a, such a married people who maintain that romantic excitement for each other their marriages 
last and they, they, they have better homes for their children. We can't do enough really to, to keep that romantic flame alight. Don't you think, Ashley? Yeah, no. And I think that doesn't violate the spirit of Ash Wednesday at all. You know, there's no prescription necessarily that you're not allowed to have wine on Ash Wednesday. It's more, it's more, I mean, and in general Lent, there's no prescriptive. The church doesn't say this is what you can and can't do with the exception of the tiniest thing, which is just no meat on Friday and Ash Wednesday. But it's more about the spirit of making sacrifices, giving something up, reorienting your mind. And so I think if you're doing that because you're wanting to also celebrate the romance that you have in your marriage, that that's sort of the perfect the perfect spirit of the thing. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that, you know, it can be sacrificial to set aside that time that where they, you know, you could have been getting extra work done or going to bed early or, you know, just doing any myriad of things that get in the way of romance that supports a healthy marriage and a healthy home life. Yeah, so there is, there is something. Totally in the spirit. Sometimes when you, when, when we, you speak to some couples, they, it does seem like they're like for them to do that time of romance is like a sacrifice. So maybe that's a good way to think about it. Maybe, maybe it's hard for, for some people to set aside that time to spend time on, on what they feel because they're good people, because they want to give everything to their children and they want to be effective at work and all the things, you know, all the wonderful things they're doing to be great moms and dads and, and great, uh, people out there in the world. But then they're not. They're not feeding that super important thing, which maybe they have to sacrifice other things for, like other ideals. But it has to be, I think, for all married people and for all people who hope to get married, one of the very, very top things in our in our list of priorities has to be that, that romantic flame that we keep alive with our spouse. So let's hope that um, the three of us and all our listeners who are married or hope to be married or walking towards marriage, that they find a wonderful way to combine Ash Wednesday and, and Valentine's Day. So we get to be inventive and clever this year. Thank you for joining me, ladies. Thank you. And now Father Roger Landry offers a short and inspiring homily for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you. The consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us this Sunday, when one of the most physically disgusting and repulsive human beings imaginable, a leper, came up to Jesus, knelt down, and begged Jesus to cure him. Lepers, as you know, have a bacterial infection that eats away their flesh and bones and gives them a sickening odor. At the time of Jesus, leprosy was considered so contagious that those with it were quarantined for basically the rest of their life apart from the community. They had no one with whom to associate or to care for them except other lepers. They were cut off from their family, from work, from the synagogue and temple, and basically from love and mercy. They were outcasts, ostracized from all things human. They had to wear ripped clothes and keep their hair messy so that others would be able to spot them easily from a distance. Whenever they needed to travel to obtain anything, they were mandated by Mosaic law to shout out, unclean, unclean. They were forbidden to come within a certain distance of others. Anyone who touched a leper became, in Jewish mentality, unclean. That the man in today's gospel broke all convention to come close to Jesus was already a sign of his desperation. What was Jesus' reaction to this miserable, nauseating creature on his knees before him? Most of those around Jesus likely ran away from him lest they catch the contagion. Jesus, however, moved in the opposite direction. To the leper's plea of faith, if you wish, you can make me clean. Jesus, filled with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched the leper. We can almost hear the shrieks of onlookers 2,000 years later. It's probably the first time a non-leper had touched him in years. Then Jesus said the words that were the answer to the man's prolonged prayers. I do will it be made clean. He was thoroughly and immediately made whole. 
Jesus gave him instructions to go see the priest and go through the rites of the Mosaic law for testimony of a cure against leprosy so that he, so long an outcast, could legitimately return to the human community. This gospel is a beautiful one to have three days before we begin the holy season of Lent. During Lent, each of us is called to approach Jesus with faith, with all of our sins that are eating away our soul like Hansen's disease, destroys our flesh and bones, and say, if you wish, you can make me clean. Jesus wants to say to each of us in return, I do will it, be made clean. Lent is a time of such cleansing. The practice of prayer helps us to overcome the leprosy of egocentrism to put God first. The practice of almsgiving helps us to conquer the leprosy of selfishness and put others ahead of ourselves. The practice of fasting helps us to triumph against the leprosy of pleasure-seeking, of making our bellies our God, so that we can learn how to hunger for what God hungers. Lent is a period of purification. Each of us needs to be humble enough, each of us needs to be smart enough, to recognize our state and come to God so that he, moved with compassion, can stretch out his hand and touch us. This Sunday is also World Marriage Sunday, when we're called to focus our attention on the blessing of marriage as the mutual committed love of husband and wife and to thank married couples for all the sacrifice they make to build loving families that are the building block of society and the cells of the mystical body of Christ the Church. While we celebrate the gift of marriage, it's also a day to take note of various threats to marriage. The same evil one who tried to sabotage the union of Adam and Eve at the beginning goes after every marriage. There are various ways individual marriages and those in marriages can become leprotic. The great leprosy is lust, which turns love from mutual self-giving to reciprocal utilitarianism and harmonious hedonisms. Many with the vocations to marriage never make it because their heart has been eaten away by porn and various sexual sins. Others within marriage give in to sins against fidelity like adultery or against indissolubility like easy divorce or against fruitfulness like contraception. Even the very notion of marriage can be eaten away by culture in the courts, making marriage a husbandless, wifeless, or intentionally childless institution. In the context of all of these soul-eating bacterium, this weekend we go before Jesus, the divine bridegroom, and beg, if you wish, you can make us clean. You can purify our hearts and our eyes and our homes and our marriages. Jesus wants to give us the gift of chastity, of purity of heart, of reverence for his image and for others, so that our love may be truly loving. We enter into prayerful conversation with him and we ask for it. But just like with the leper in the gospel, Jesus doesn't just say magic words, heal us, and then let us do whatever we please. He wants to lead us to greater faith, but we have to cooperate. We see what happened in the gospel. As soon as the leper got what he wanted, he started doing his own thing. St. Mark tells us that Jesus wanted him to grow in trusting obedience, and therefore commanded him to go to the Levitical priests. He also warned him sternly, see that you tell no one anything. Jesus well knew that if news of the miracle became widespread, everyone would be coming to him first as a free medical doctor, and secondly as the long-awaited Messiah, whom they would interpret in political terms, as someone who would boot the Romans and reinstitute a Davidic temporal kingdom. Jesus wanted to avoid these misconceptions because he had not come as a new political candidate or as a new Hippocrates, but as a savior. The former leper's response to Jesus' stern warning not to tell anyone anything was, however, to ignore Jesus totally. St. Mark tells us, The man went away and began to publicize the whole matter. He spread the report abroad so that it was impossible for Jesus openly to enter a town. Jesus remained outside in deserted places, and people kept coming to him from everywhere, exactly validating Jesus' concerns that underlined his warning and command. While the man was cured of the leprosy of his skin and body parts, he wasn't cured of the leprosy of a partially hardened heart. 
when he had heard the voice of the Lord telling him not to do something, he blew the Lord off. He likely thought that he had justification for doing so. After all, Jesus had given him the greatest gift of his life, and what might it hurt, he probably told himself publicly to praise him for it. But the simple fact of the matter is that he blatantly disobeyed the Lord's command. The leprosy of a partially hardened heart, a heart that hears the Lord's voice but responds selectively according to one's own desires, needs, and categories, can affect anyone, including us. We may listen attentively and put into practice Jesus' words about praying always, but harden our heart to his words about confessing our sins to those whom he, whom he has sent with the power to forgive and retain sins in his name. We may seek to enflesh his words about crossing the road to help someone in need when we feel like it, but harden our hearts to Jesus' word about welcoming strangers like immigrants as we would welcome him when we don't feel like it. We may faithfully keep the commandment to honor our parents, but violate his command to forgive our siblings 70 times, 7 times. We may faithfully heed his word about the mass, to eat his flesh and drink his blood, but totally ignore his commission to go out to every creature we know and proclaim his, his gospel. If God speaks to us a word we want to hear, then maybe we'll do it. But if the Lord challenges us to do something we don't want to do, often, just like the leper in today's gospel, we'll ignore God's voice and listen to our own. The challenge is quite relevant to us in the two applications we've considered. This Lent, the Lord calls us to holiness through uniting ourselves to him in prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. He'll tell us on Wednesday, when you fast, when you give alms, when you pray, will we heed his words or do our own thing or think about those commands as a multiple choice test and just do one of the three? Likewise, with regard to love, marriage, sex, and family, will we do what he teaches us through his church or do what RuPaul and the intellectual descendants of Hugh Hefner and Harvey Milk teach us through the media. Jesus wants to cleanse us, but do we want to cooperate with that purifying work by doing what he says? At the end of our consequential conversation with Jesus this Sunday, he won't tell us, see that you tell no one anything. Rather, he'll reiterate the Great Commission when he told us, go to the whole world and proclaim the gospel to everyone. He wants us to pass on his truth with far greater enthusiasm than the fans of the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers are going to be cheering their lungs out during the Super Bowl. Jesus wants us to share with others the same healing gospel he gives us, the same truth that sets us free, the same words of eternal life that help us rise from sin and death. He'll reach out his hand to touch and cleanse us, but he wants us not to let go of his hand, but to journey with him in holiness each day, in our love life and marriages, in ordinary time and Lent and beyond. May our encounter with Jesus this Sunday have that type of life-changing impact. God bless you. With that, I leave you and thank you again for being our listeners. And we continue to pray for you always. Mm-hmm.